Hi, I'm Steve Calfee, Senior Vice President at Atari in the old days, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ted Dabney Experience. I'm Richard May and this is a podcast project with the thoughts Paul Drury, Hello. Tony Temple Hi. and myself. An opportunity to speak at length with not only the leading lights but also the supporting cast from the golden age of video arcade gaming. You'll recognise Paul's byline from Retro Gamer magazine and Tony is the author of Missile Commander, a journey to the top of an arcade classic. For this episode we speak with a rare bird indeed, the lesser spotted Steve Calfee. Steve's managerial role within Atari's coin-up division saw him channel the work of well-known programmers such as Dave Toyer, Rich Adam, Dennis Coble and Howard Delman into arcade smash hits such as Canyon Bomber, Space Duel and Missile Command. Steve has rarely gone on record about his tenure at Atari, so we were most grateful for his time and company. As ever, thank you for listening. You can find us on Twitter at TheTDEPodcast and also read a little more about who we are and what we do when we're not doing this at TDEPodcast. .net. The podcast is currently ad-free, so if you're listening on a regular basis, you might consider buying us a beer or coffee at Kofi. The URL for that is ko-fi.com forward slash TDE podcast. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Steve, thanks for coming on the podcast. Before we get into all things Atari, can we talk a little about your history with computers and programming? Could you, could you tell us where and when you came across your first computer? Okay, but I'm really old. Uh, in high school in Modesto, California, I went to Modesto J.C., when I was a senior in high school, that would have been in 68, mm-hmm. and played with the only computer that was in the town at that time, which was some old retired IBM computer. Okay, Didn't do much, played a little program on Fortran, but that made me decide I would go into computer science. And the only place in the state that had an undergraduate degree, at least that I looked at, was UC Berkeley. So I went to Berkeley from 68 to 72. And I had some interesting roommates. My first roommate, well, second roommate as a freshman was Don Lang, who later was manager at Atari, one of the early Syzygy employees. And, and Syzygy, Syzygy, just for the benefit of our listeners who don't know, was the name of Atari before Atari. Yes. And he kicked me out when I was a sophomore for his friend that was coming down from Eureka and I was Dennis Coble. So the three of us were very close there for several years, um, and including after we started work. Yeah, Dennis speaks Dennis speaks very highly of you. Yeah, I, I really like Dennis. I, although I haven't seen him in 30 years, uh, it's still, it was, a, it was a good friendship for a long time. So Steve, what else can you tell us about that early, early hobbyist computer scene in the mid 70s? Well, 
pre-1975, there were no microprocessors. So I did a lot of stuff on mini computers. And there was this crazy group at Slack, Stanford Linear Accelerator Center at Stanford, uh, called the Homebrew Computer Club. And I was a member there. Mm. And uh, that's kind of got its own stories, including like Steve Wozniak sitting in the lobby, typing in Integer Basic on the Apple One. And that, that got me interested in the microprocessors. And as soon as they came out, I sent $25 off to MOS technology and they sent me a processor. But what do you do with just a processor? Answer is not much. So soon after that, Atari started to be noticeable. That is, they went away from, they were going away from hardware into software. Yeah. And I had Don and Dennis Coble friends there. So I called them up and got a job. But before then, you were you were at National Semiconductor, right? Working on supermarket checkout systems, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. I actually had three jobs. So the first one I had was um, TriData, where we did uh, eight-track cassette-like players for data. And um, people used them on PDP-8s and Novas. And I don't know, there was a whole bunch of different, we did like nine different mini computers. Then I went to uh, Spectrum Medical, worked on a medical system for a year. Then I went to um, National Semiconductor and worked on the data checker. And that's where I met Dave Toyer. Right, okay. Who at that time was known as Dave Thur. <laughs> it wasn't until much later he found out how to pronounce his own name. So, so I mean, I was joking with Paul earlier on, but would we, you know, supermarket checkout systems in the seventies was that like the the you know the the seventies equivalent of self driving cars or or whatever? You know, was that like the was no? That... They were actually they were in use, and but these were real laser scanners, like you see in a flip supermarket now. Oh, okay, right. And uh, it was a pretty well done one, but it was just basically a mini computer in the back room of Safeway or Albertsons or whatever your store was uh, that would run the cash registers. And everybody everybody was always so amazed that the totals for the departments always equaled the total for the store, not realizing the total of the store was just adding up the departments. <laughs> did, did, that, did that corporate environment uh, suit you, uh, Steve, or um, we, we, we looking further afield already by this point? Well, you know, National Semiconductor is a weird company. Everybody hated it. The customers hated it. The employees hated it. Uh, <laughs> and yet it lasted a long, long time. And finally, a few years ago, sold out to Texas Instruments. Yeah. <laughs> Maker of the infamous speak and spell. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, it was a year and a half or something I spent at National Semiconductor in the data checker division. And then I went to Atari. And shortly after that, I brought Dave Toyer over as a program. Dave Thurer. Yeah. Dave Thurer. Yeah. Did Dave really not know how to spell his own name or is that a running joke? with you between you guys no really that's uh, he introduced himself that's how he started atari is dave oh, Furr. oh really <laughs> it wasn't until missile command and we went to um the ate show in london and i think it must have been in january 1980 mm -hmm. uh that he met some german guy who said that is how you say it Hello, Steve. Um, you uh, alluded earlier that you knew some people that would go on to work at Atari from college days, Don Lang and indeed Dennis Coble. Were they at Atari before you then? Yes, yes. Don was very early. He was there, like I said, at Syzygy days. And uh, Dennis was there, 
I don't know, six months earlier than me, because that's basically when they started using microprocessors. It was about six months before I started in October 76. So was it a question of your old buddies saying, hey, this place is really cool to work at. You know, why don't you come and join us? Or was it a more formal interview process? Um, It was a very weird interview. I went in and talked to three or four programmers. And once you could establish that, you know, you could raise a fog on a mirror, and you could program. That was good enough. Okay. <laughs> I thought that was some programming term that I wasn't aware of. You mean the ability to breathe. Um, yes. Right, thank yes. you. <laughs> right. So they were looking for people and they found you. Um, so what did you make of the company when you arrived in 1976? Tell us a little bit about the uh, the atmosphere and the setup back then. Well, the atmosphere was definitely weird. You know, I came from a fairly corporate tilt-up building. And it was in like a tract home in Campbell. Um, it was before the company moved to, to Santa Clara. The headquarters was in uh, Los Gatos. But as far as I know, I never went to headquarters. I was always just in the Campbell's building for like, I don't know, three months. And it was two houses, like, you know, six, seven bedrooms and a couple living rooms and stuff like that. And one of them was for pinball and one of them was for coin up. And very notable, that same time I started, Eugene Jarvis was in our, my starting class. Uh, Dave Steuben was there, plus or minus a few days of me. And from then on, it seemed like Atari was always in this giant growth mode. You um, you mentioned that, I think you started, tell me if I'm wrong, did you actually start in the pinball division? No, they were in the next house. Ah, right. I, I started in the coin-up games, arcade games. Okay, and you were employed as programmer? Is that, yeah, is that yeah. your official job title? So, yeah. um, and back in 1976, when Atari were only just getting in to actually making games in software, tell us then, did they just sort of say, there's the manual, make a game? Yeah, there was more than that. This wasn't consumer in that coin-op stuff was a collaboration between hardware, software, cabinets, and then there was graphics and other stuff, a huge amount of marketing and manufacturing. But the, the main team was hardware, software, and technique technician support um Mm -hmm. at that early day we didn't even get a terminal to type stuff in we were doing assembly language programming but we had a couple very helpful girls that would do the keyboard entry for us and um, we would get some kind of output i think it was paper tape to take to the development system which was a very very primitive deal what was it can you can you recall your very first game project, whether it came out or not, that you actually worked on then in Coinal? Um, it was probably Sprint 8. Um, Dennis Coble had done Sprint 2 and it was released and out. Sprint 8 was a conversion of Tank 8, which as far as I know was the very first um, computerized video game in the arcades um and it came out of grass valley and was finished off by tom hogue and was kind of a dud they had 193 left over and these are eight player games these are big expensive things i think we should just yeah we should just stress that it's called sprint eight not because it's the eighth in the series because it supported eight players that's right 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 that's how we tended to name the games um in coin up was how many players it was so sprint eight was it was a 6800 stuff that was converted in Grass Valley. It had like 193 mod wires on the PC board. It was basically unmaintainable okay. for, you know, 200 unit sales uh, in the field. And I think they eventually actually relayed out the board and, and sent it out. 
because it was so unmaintainable. That was not a successful product for anybody, I don't think. No, it sounds it sounds like you're slightly thrown in into the deep end then by saying here's, you know, work with hardware, you're doing software, we're trying to produce something, oh it looks unstable. Did you feel like um slightly out your depth even, Steve? No, that and not only that, but see, this one was actually coded by Grass Valley, but they had certain oddities in it. Because of the the way the cars rotated, there were only um, 28 or so uh, rotation pictures, and they used 32 bits because they or five bits because they had 32 positions. So you had this odd burp at each of the 90 degrees where the thing would stick there for two times. So I had to change it to go modulo 28 and a couple other fairly minor changes. So it was a pretty simple, easy thing to get into okay okay uh, just a little bit about the sprint series which kind of pioneered the overhead racer that has uh, continued to this day um did you enjoy working on a on a series so that you could see you know those small improvements on the gameplay was it was that something you enjoyed uh yeah i mean it wasn't a passion of my life but, <laughs> uh sprint two was the first one done by dennis Koval. uh he later did sprint one which basically meant removing the start button and I don't know. <laughs> there was <some> very <laughs> trivial changes. Then I did Sprint 8, and then I did Sprint 4, which was taking Cobalt's code and redoing it for totally new hardware. And that was a four-player driver. And by then, I was pretty tired of Sprint car drivers. Yeah, the, <laughs> right, yeah. Fair enough. We'll park that. Uh, can I just ask that you mentioned uh, Eugene Jarvis there. I presume you came into contact with him in the pinball division. So am I right thinking that you did spend some time working in pinball? Is that correct? I did, but much later. Oh, okay. um, the, the involvement was he was in the next building and we had lunch together and Campbell office. What was he like back then? What are your memories? Same as now. He, he's a cool guy. Uh, he's a fun guy to be around. Always joking. I think you did a bit of programming on, on the Atarians. If I got that right, that was their very first pinball table. Were you in, did you do a bit of the code on that? No, I had nothing to do with the first rev of pinball coming out which all the, the early games were beautiful and just really hit the spot, except they were hardware nightmares. Okay. Um, they did such innovative stuff as they laid this, you know, 11 by 17 inch circuit board down in the coffin below all the thumpers and stuff. While in mechanical stuff, like sheds pieces of metal all the time, which is really hard on electronics. Um, so when we, we did the next version, which started at Superman in 79, Dave Steuben was taken off. Well, did the hardware design. I did the software design for it. Um, we moved in the backboard, which the actual pinball guys in Chicago knew was the right place for it. <laughs> Okay. And that was taking um, Steve Ritchie and Eugene Jarvis had done a game called um, Spitfire. And uh, we just took that and put it on the new hardware. And I, you know, what do I know about pinball? We just use the sounds from Spitfire. So if you listen to Superman pinball, it sounds like an airplane shooting guns and all this other stuff because Eugene did all the sounds. <laughs> um, I just want to ask you about one last game from that kind of pre-Asteroids era at um, Atari. Um, and uh, it's a quote from Howard Delman, who was working on Canyon Bomber. And according to Howard, um, he asked for a 3K ROM for the uh, the game. And apparently you said, and I quote, according to Howard, Jesus, ROMs don't grow on trees. Can't you shave a few chapters off that Tolstoy? Is that how you remember things? Uh, probably pretty close. It sounds like something I would say to Howie. Uh, okay. D did you like giving programmers a, a, a challenge like that? 
um, of sort of, come on, you can do better than this. Yeah. Usually, though, it was the opposite problem. Getting somebody to finish something is get done. Uh, you know, nobody's going to thank you for saving a nickel, but a lot of people thank you. You get it done this much. <laughs> was it, you mentioned, was, I mean, the, the fact that you managed to, and apparently you did manage to get it down to 2K ROM for Canyon Bomber, that would have saved some money because you'd need, um, you know, only one ROM chip, not two. Was, was cost a big consideration back then, Steve? It was. Uh, I mean, for years, we wanted to do color games, color monitors. The Japanese were doing them, but that would have added $200 over the $100 black and white monitors to the cost of the game. And at $700 cost of goods or whatever they were, um, that's significant. Uh, and finally, that's one of the thrills about Missile Command is that Gene Lipkin sent a picture down of a weather color weather forecast and uh, said, do a game looks like this. And it was color. So we had permission to do color. And so that was a that was a huge step. We um, we talked to Doug Wismer on a previous episode who worked for uh, Electra Home, who provided the monitors. So you, you were there at that tipping point when Atari decided to go color. Did you, did you think that was, a, you know, an exciting new world you were about to enter? Sure it was. Uh, you know, and it's like everything in CoinUp was having a competitive advantage against alternatives. And technology ruled. And it wasn't until CoinUp couldn't really beat the home experience Uh CoinOp was so much superior to any game you could do on a PC or an Apple II or anything else. Uh, and color was an important part of being superior. Uh, Steve, just sort of moving along the, the timeline a little bit, you must have seen or rather started to see some big changes at Atari around 1979 as things started to take off with the arrival of Asteroids build as the game that broke the camel's back of Space Invaders. So what was your job title around that time? Because it sort of sounds like you were moving into more of a managerial role. Yeah, after, I don't know, six months or a year, I became a team leader. And there were four teams in CoinOp doing games. Mm -hmm. And Dave Subin had a team. I had a team. I think Tom Hogue had a team. And there was another one that had team leader of the day. I don't really remember who was in charge. Uh, unfortunately for Atari, only the two teams, Dave's and mine, was really cranking out games. So we did a lot of games in, in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, the other teams just couldn't generate the complete game. And uh, that it was a weird time of growth and demand. So it was fun. Yeah, sure. And and I mean, talking of asteroids, um, Ed Log clearly had a big hand in um, coin up fortunes around that time. Did, did you recruit Ed? And no, I wish I could. Ed was one of the ones I didn't hire. Okay. Uh, he's one of the three best games programmers ever lived, in my opinion, with uh, Suzuki Yu at um, Sega and Miyamoto in Nintendo, who I never met. But in terms of the game outputs and the longevity, those three guys. And Eugene Jarvis is not to be, not be mentioned, but those three are the big ones. Sure. And Ed is just super. Yeah. In, in terms of your management style, um, Steve, I... I, I spoke to Dave Toyer last week um, asking him for some um, pointers and he his recollection of you and I quote was uh, Steve was calm open-minded and somewhat easygoing yet he knew how to motivate people to work hard and he was usually smiling and positive I just wonder if if managing the different personalities of the programmers in CoinOp something of a fine art. Oh yeah, sure it was, and of course it's easy to be nice to somebody as good as Dave Toyer, uh, right? But yeah, I I was kind of you know in the team situation I was like a sergeant, and that was where I was best. 
and later I became battlefield promoted to various things, but I was best as the sergeant where I knew how to do things and I knew how to get other people to do things. Sure. And I would imagine some people were easier to manage than others. Oh yeah, sure. But you know, they either, generally it comes down to they could either do the job or they couldn't. And it didn't matter how much you beat them up. You couldn't change them. Sure. Yeah. Um, we've mentioned Dave Toyer. I, I wonder if you'll indulge me and um, what I thought would be a good idea would be to perhaps just sort of drill down on a specific game and just, just sort of talk about how the game came about. And um, I figured Missile Command would be a, a good candidate for that. So um, you met Dave Toyer, you mentioned earlier, at National Semiconductor. Um, how and why did you recruit him to Atari? Um, how? I just called him up and said, come over for an interview okay. uh, shortly after I'd been there because I knew he was a good programmer. I'd worked with him. And if, if that's the only way to guarantee success in a hire yep. is to personally know what the guy can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I hired a lot of people and some worked out really good. Like Ed Rodberg was great, uh, but some don't. <laughs> if you get a 50% hit rate, you're doing good. And Dave Toyer was a guarantee. Yeah. Uh, so um, Dave was brought on and his first game, of course, was um, Atari Soccer, which I kind of get the impression reading between the lines. He wasn't terribly impressed with being given that as his first programming task. But it sounds like he uh, stepped up to the plate and um, delivered a, a relatively good game. Yeah, I I liked it. It obviously did better in Europe than American football did, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a big seller. Um it wasn't part of my team. I don't exactly remember all that going on. But when by the time he got to Missile Command, Dave was part of the team. Yeah, and, and, and a, of course, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Well, we also had Dave Sherman as the hardware guy. And we did some pretty innovative hardware mm-hmm. um, for the time. It was you know first color game. Yep. It was a bitmap game, but we couldn't afford the memory. And at that time, 16K bit DRAMs was state of the art. But we thought, oh, we'll save all this money. We'll buy rejects that we have half bad and because we only needed 8K. But it turned out that when the semi-guys sorted them, all they, all they would guarantee is that one half was bad. They would guarantee the other half was good. <laughs> and right. it, was, it was a bad idea. We eventually ended up going to the 16Ks for the whole thing and only using half of them. Yeah. Quality control, clearly an issue. Yeah. Um, Missile Command, of course, was um, sort of Dave's opportunity to to shine and really sort of run with a with a unique bespoke project. You alluded to how the game's idea came about, and that's um, Gene Lipkin had this idea based on a couple of photographs he, he'd seen in a magazine. I don't remember the magazine, but it, it was definitely a color photograph of a um, radar weather radar screen okay and that was all we got from gene is do something looks like this and dave and i and rich adam and others kind of fleshed out the basic stuff of what it was going to do and they did a lot of experimentation along the way Uh, there was a lot of things tried didn't work out uh and it was actually a very intricate game it was a fun game where there was a railroad across the bottom of the screen and so the missiles would not just take out your cities they would also take out your reloads for your missile bases but it was awfully busy section of the screen (laughs) and nobody knew what it was and not only that but the first one was it was the coast of california looking out over an ocean so we had like a a submarine would pop up and shoot missiles and everybody played the game said why is there a submarine up there in the air they they interpreted because of the way the monitor was that it was a picture of the sky so we just shrugged and said okay that's the air so we went to missiles and bombers and things like that 
Dave describes Miss Command as a great lesson in less is more. And it was really a sort of voyage of discovery of, you know, something that sounds like a good idea on paper um, doesn't always translate to, you know, simple straightforward put a quarter in and start playing gameplay yeah and you know they like rich and and dave went off on their own uh to do a surprise ending for the game and they came up with the end up till then all games had always ended with game over right but it seemed appropriate for missile command to end with the end Mm -hmm. and and did you did you specifically give the project to dave for a specific reason or was it just uh, you know dave at that point was twiddling his thumbs needing something else to occupy his time yeah i think it was the luck of the draw um okay i got the game from lipkin probably because i had a team that needed something to do and dave was on on that a team in this case being a hardware software group and dave was free at that time because he just finished something maybe it was soccer um do you have any recollections of of the large attract panel that was on the game when it was um originally designed oh only vaguely i mean those kind of things were we had a great graphics department and great you know cabinets department and they they kind of wanted to shine or something i think it was even somewhat tied in with gameplay i think there were blinky lights on it Mm -hmm. Uh, but that kind of stuff it cost money and it really didn't increase plays right so i think we lost it sure yeah and um just to to sort of wrap wrap this up your role as a as a team leader i just wonder how how often you interacted with the programmers were you very much hands-on or did you find just let's just let these guys sort of do their thing well interact hourly you know all the time we were in the same area we we were looking at stuff in terms of supervising their coding. No, I didn't look at their code at all. Right. Uh, we did do a lot of discussions about hardware and how to implement the the bitmap hardware. Like, I don't know if you know this, but you know, on Missile Command, the top seven eighths of it are two bits of color. You'll never see more than four colors up there. And the bottom one has three bits of color. So you get eight colors at the bottom. And one of the colors of both we called flash color, which is just it was cycled through the uh, palette to make that whitey, flashy color for explosions. So there was really only three colors up in the screen for missile tracks and explosions and, I don't know, jet airplanes or whatever. So they they could change the colors, but you only have three at a time. Sure. And and were you comfortable managing the, the ongoing pressure around this time? So, you know, sort of 79 to 82 where you know titles were being cranked out they were selling in the tens of thousands for the most part i just wonder how much pressure was coming down from from upstairs you know um to okay so missile commands out what what else have you guys got what's next well sure there there was always pressure but it's a different kind of pressure than like the programmers would would feel once you got a hit and you knew it was a hit because you couldn't ever get on your machine to test or do development because other programmers are in there playing it. Missile Command had that. Asteroids had that. Um, but it, it, that just made it more pressure to get the thing out and into production. Missile Command was kind of lucky that we had to hold it off production for, I don't know, three months, six months. It was a long time because Asteroid was totally taking up all the production line. Um. Steve, um, we see your name and signature on on many old Atari industrial drawings as an approver of various bits of hardware like Jerry Lycheck's trackball, for example. So tell us about how that approval process worked and and how engineering interfaced with software. Well, the 
The approval process for, for production release all had to have one person to blame, and that was the project leader. And in this case, I was the team leader as well as project leader. And so every change was like missile command. They must have gone through 10 different power supplies as they used up stuff that was an inventory that was left over from other games. Every time they made a change like that, you'd have to sign off uh, saying it was appropriate, you know, and, and stuff like that that's significant. Um, we would always have an engineer check it and verify it and tell me, yes, this is what we want. And I'd have to sign off saying, yes, go into production. Yeah, so how, how hands-on were you? Or were you literally just sitting there going, yeah, tick, tick, tick? But again, it depend on whether I had any hope of actually being able to contribute like to hard mechanical design on a trackball or something, nah. But in terms of hardware and software and the electronics, yeah, I was pretty hands-on. Hmm. And would always, if I didn't know it, I would rely on somebody that did. And basically, we would always be prototyping that stuff first anyway. I think Jed did a lot of the analog stuff. Jed Margolin? Jed Margolin, yeah. yeah. Um, Steve, we're, we're, we're like many like many collectors and uh, golden age video game aficionados. We're, we're huge fans of Atari's vector releases, you know, Battlezone, Tempest, Gravatar, Star Wars, etc. And... Atari is, of course, rightly lauded for their efforts with vector games uh, and, and, well, for the results with vector games. With, with, with hindsight, do you think the, the tech was a little, was slightly ahead of its time, given the relative fragility of, of the hardware? Um, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I think it was perfect at the perfect time. Mm. Uh, the fragility of the hardware and stuff, it's like when you're the first person to do stuff, you quite often have trouble. But that was all driven by a uh, third team leader, uh, Rick Moncrief. And he drove some of the most fantastic new stuff through the company. Mm. He had the single best, most important, most valuable patent, which was the force feedback steering from hard driving. Right. Um, and he did the, all the monitors, black and white and color XY monitors. He didn't like what I call monitors. He insisted on calling them displays. Right. He was a fabulous engineer. He's like a bulldog. He would start on a project and he would just sit on that project until it got done. Mm. And he even bought or forced a company to buy a manufacturer in Brownsville, Texas to manufacture color monitors. Yeah, well, we spoke We spoke with um, the Art of Atari author, Tim Lapatino, and he did say that, um, because we were asking him, you know, your book focuses on Atari. Obviously, that's the title. Do you, Are you ever tempted to do a book on, say, ColorCovision or, or, or comp, you know, or any other coin-op operator, sorry, coin-op designer of the day? And he was like, no, Atari were the gold standard. People either zagged away from Atari or they emulated Atari. So, so it sounds like... I mean, you guys really were trailblazing with, with the vector games. Yeah, pretty much everything we did was the first time it was being done. And there were there were people like Dennis Coble that would go over to the dark side, which would be called consumer. Right. <laughs> and we did some people exchanges back and forth. But in general, we were a source of people. Like Rob Fulop, um, I hired him as a summer intern. I think he may have worked some on Superman, but pinball. Um, but I didn't have an opening when he, when he got through with college. And so I think Coble hired him. Uh, so there was, it was a one-way street. Koidop gave it, the consumer took. Um, Steve, you're, um, you're, you're credited with a hand in space duel. Um, would this be correct? Yeah, uh, there was actually two space duels. Okay, go on. There, one of the failures I had early was a color, actually it may have been black and white. It was a 
a two rocket ship computer space kind of game, um, Space Wars, Space Wars game. Um, and it really didn't work out. It wasn't fun. We didn't have enough motion objects. About the only fun thing in it was when you could blast a planet and after hitting it a bunch of times, it would disappear. And Lyle Raines, being one of the most creative people I've ever met, uh, saw that and went, hmm, that's, that's interesting. And they had this new black and white XY coming out and they, they used that as a basis for asteroids. So that, that game was called Cosmos or Space Duel or various other things, but it was killed. And then later we did a color XY asteroids called Space, and I had to name it. And I just liked the name, so I called Space Duel. And I was project leader on that. And that was started by one programmer and he basically, he left the company. He couldn't take the pressure of finishing it up. And Owen Rubin stepped in and finished the game. Yeah, I think that was one of the first games that Owen actually got to production. Right, interesting. Okay. Um, how how much actual programming um, did you do then, Steve, um, at Atari? And what Atari coin-up game are you most proud of? Okay, well, by um, I wasn't doing much programming after Superman Pinball. Right. That was 79. After that, it was pretty much all management. But that also is the one game I'm most proud of. In, in all my life, that's the best program I ever did. It was, you know, very limited resources. It had uh, 6K of ROM. A 4K of it was an interpreter that ran five cooperative tasks. And 2K was personality. And then we, were, we had two or three more in line. And finally, Atari decided they just could not handle the manufacturing. They just could not get the harnesses right and gave up. And shut down the whole division. Tell us, you've alluded to it slightly, you know, a few minutes ago, but what about this famous animosity between consumer and coin-op? Was that, was that really on the programming side of things? Was that, was that, was it there? Was it as we, as we, as we believe it to be? Well, it was, I don't know. There was some competition. There was some jealousy that the consumer programmers got credit for doing stuff like, Ooh, he programmed missile command, but he did the VCS conversion. He didn't program missile command, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was a lot of socializing. There was a lot of interchange of even people. Ed Log went and did uh, some consumer game yeah. uh, for VCS. I don't remember which one. Maybe it was Centipede. Yeah. Ed Log was a fantastic programmer, still is. And he would do things just to try them out and, you know, see, see how the things worked and why... The limitations were there on the VCS and everything, which you had to be an extraordinarily good programmer to program the VCS. Yeah, so we're here. A difficult machine to work with. Yeah. Yeah. And then later I converted to the dark side. I was fought it tooth and nail all the way. And it wasn't until uh, Ray Kassar was taken out of the company, which was 83 sometime. And the president of CoinOp, John Ferran, became president of Atari Inc., uh, COO and mainly consumer. And they brought in Jim Morgan to be CEO that I went over to the, the dark side. And first I was vice president of game design and I had coin op as well as the consumer group, but they were just basically ripping me apart from the, the coin op part. Oh, wow. So they, they pulled you, they pulled you away. Yeah. Right. Then I went to consumer and I had both the Atari 400, 800 programmers and all the consumer programmers. So that's how I got to be senior vice president. Right. Okay. Sounds like you might have been spread a little thin. Well, during yeah, this time. and they did that intentionally so they they know they'd have to 
I'd have to give up the coin op, guys. <laughs> really? Uh, one of those moves, right? I see. Yeah. Steve, you uh, joined Atari in 76 and, and ended up leaving, I believe, in 1984. Just wondered, over those tumultuous eight years, what would you say were sort of the key changes you saw at the company, both positive and, and maybe negative? Well, the po- everybody loves a winner. And <laughs> while it was in the growth phase, it was great. And Atari CoinOp was in a great growth phase up until about 82. And the consumer growth phase must have started in about 79, 78. It was, it was pretty early, but it was just explosive. And you saw the poison that will do if you've got management that says, get some more people, do some more stuff. And there was no consumer engineering management of any, of any sort. And so it was like chaos. And so to solve the problem, they just hired more people as opposed to fixing the problem. And so coin up or consumer was really pretty messed up. That's that's interesting. I mean, you use a strong word there, poison. Is that, um, you know, is that how you saw some of the decisions by upper management, particularly after the Warner buyout? Yeah, well, actually, the Warner buyout was right around whenever I started there uh, in 76. Uh, So I didn't really know it pre-76, although Nolan was around a lot. He liked hanging out with the engineers. We liked hanging out with him. Um, But after a couple of years, he was out and Manny Gerard was the Warner guy that was kind of in charge of Atari. And he took the hit in 84, whenever, 83, whenever the, the final consumer collapse happened. Um, a large part of that consumer collapse too is driven by Warner because they had this very tight relationship with Spielberg and we actually produced more cartridges for ET than there were base units. Uh, but it really was, they were projecting you know, two points in a ruler and you got a strategic projection. They're projecting growth of the base of the VCS. Nobody had ever been there. Nobody ever knew there was a top to the market. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned Nolan there, who, of course, is, as the founder of Atari, of course, is a big part of, um, well, a big part of the story. Um, so you did have some crossover. What are your memories of, of working with Nolan? Well, working, that's a, a vague term with Nolan, but uh, <laughs> he was a key designer on Canyon Bomber, which, if you look at it, was a very logical extension from Breakout. Um, and it was a very fun game, but he was down there in the lab all the time playing with Howie Delman and tuning it. Um, any, any game design features, they, they were largely Nolan driven. We got to go, you know, the first memories I have of him really was he drove up in a Rolls Royce Okay. Uh, right after he sold the company and he bought the Folger Mansion in Woodside, which was a beautiful estate. And we, So he sounds like he wasn't understated if he arrived in a Rolls Royce. There. Oh, no. Um, now, we um, the title of our podcast is the Ted Dabney experience, partly because he's, uh, perhaps Ted has uh, been you know, overlooked in his contribution in those early days. I know you didn't join until 76, but did you ever meet Ted or was aware of his sort of role at the start of the company? No, I didn't. I didn't meet him. And I only vaguely knew of him because Steve Bristow and Nolan and stuff would talk about it. But you know, the the initial name of the company was Syzygy, yes, yes, which is the alignment of three planets. You know who the third one was? Go on. You had Nolan, Ted Dabney, and there's a programmer named Larry Bryan, oh. who actually worked for me many years later at, at Tengen. Right. Um, that's Tell us more about Larry because that's a, well, that, that's a new name to me. Yeah. So tell us about... Uh, apparently, 
Syzygy never really took off. It didn't get incorporated, didn't really do anything. And probably Larry had like family to feed. So I, I don't know what happened. I don't know why he didn't do that, but he did tell me that that was the case. And I have seen elsewhere, maybe it was Mike Elba talked about Larry Bryan. I'm going to ask um, about Atari CoinOp, particularly because you've had um, some involvement with both CoinOp and Consumer Division. CoinOp always strikes us as a little bit more serious uh, and certainly saw themselves as kind of the real Atari. I just wondered, why do you think the sort of atmosphere and ethos was different in CoinOp to perhaps other parts of the company? Um, there was always hijinks. It's just we had a hardware component, which was a much more serious, more developed tech technology or mm. engineering than software was. You know, like we had one senior tech wired a flash bulb up underneath a uh, a wire wrap for one of the early, I guess it was Missile Command PC boards, which had a new engineer on mm-hmm. it. The guy comes in and flips a power switch and a pop and a light goes off. Scared him. <laughs> so do you think the fact that CoinOp, you know, is by necessity, you have to work in a team. You know, you need someone on hardware, you need an engineer as well as software. Was it that sort of team approach in a way that you perhaps didn't need so much of a team in consumer? Was was that a big reason why there was perhaps a more a more mature view of game development? Probably. And once you have a team, there's probably more requirement for um, management, even if <laughs> the pitiful young management we had. We had, you know, we were all 26, 27 years old. And manage better Atari. Uh, that's interesting because a lot of people stayed in CoinOp for a long time. We've talked to people like Mike Halley, who basically never wanted to leave. Um, so tell us, who was who was most fun to work with at Atari CoinOp, Steve? Well, that's a hard one to say. From a inspirational point of view, Lyle Rains. He was just incredibly creative. And he went kind of off the tracks into a management role for a while. We called him Hollywood Reigns. <laughs> and you probably can even find YouTubes of him talking to the press and whatnot. But he, when he finally realized that being manager was just a drag and he didn't get to do any of the fun stuff he wanted, he went to this fellow position and let Dan Van Eldren take over. Uh, Steve, um so we've sort of talked through the, the the sort of bronze era, if you will, and then we've moved on to the golden era. Um, things obviously changed quite dramatically in '83. Um, I just wonder um, why and when you finally left Atari. Oh, I got laid off. It was uh, July of '84 when Tramel bought the consumer division, and uh, I was in Yellowstone National Park with my family, and it was almost impossible to get national news there. It was surprising. Uh, but somebody called and left me a message or something. And so I went to West Yellowstone. You couldn't get a Wall Street Journal. There was just no way to find out what was going on. I called home and found out that Tramel had bought the company and nobody knew what was going on. I said, are you going to come home? I said, well, I'm on vacation. So if I have a job, I'm on vacation. If I don't have a job, why would I come home? <laughs> so I never went back. Okay. And that was the end of my, my first deal with Atari. And were you, were you sort of fairly philosophical at that point or, or were you yeah. disappointed? Or? Well, the whole consumer thing had been a big grind. Mm-hmm. It, it had been nothing but just amazement at how bad things were and the inability to actually fix it. It just imploded. And there was no way, way to stop it after, you know, a year after the big crash in 83. 
Um, so so here it goes. Sure, but presumably you went your career at Atari sounds quite sort of varied and interesting. So um, one would hope you you look back at back at your time with Atari with a certain amount of fondness. Oh yeah, especially the coin op time. Mm-hmm. The consumer time was more a nightmare. <laughs> right. And then later I went back to Atari Games mm. in '88 and ran development for Tengen doing cartridges. Sure. And that wasn't the same thing at all, but it was a job. How was it different? Um, well, the difference is in CoinUp, it was all creating. In consumer, it's all getting to market with somebody else's thing as quickly as possible. Right. And we did conversions of CoinUp games. Those were the successful ones that got to uh, production. Then there was also the licensed games, which were generally CoinUp's, Ms. Pac-Man, that kind of stuff. Uh, Shinobi. Right. But there was very there was no creative new stuff going on. So it was a grind. Sure. And we did lots of games, the NES, the Sega Genesis, the Turbo Graphics, Game Gear, Master System, Game Boy, lots of things all the way to Sony CDs. And um, are you still in touch with anyone uh, from Atari from uh, your time in CoinOp? Um, I mentioned I spoke to Dave Toyer last week and he asked me to pass on his, his regards to you. Yeah, I hadn't seen Dave in a long time. I begged him to come to the 45th reunion which was three years ago, that Atari had out in a park in San Jose. And it was a really good meeting of lots of people I didn't see very often. In terms of Dave Stubin, I talked to Dave Steuben and Rick Moncrief every once in a while, Lyle Raines, uh, Mike Alba. Mm-hmm. And um, so, Steve, do you, um, obviously you had a hand in many coin-op games. Do you, do you own any titles these days? Yeah, I've got Tempest, Space Duel, Cocktail Missile Command. Are they all stock models or...? Do you, do you have any interesting prototypes lying around? Well, they're all prototypes. Oh, wow. So so is your Tempest a Tempest or is it a Vortex? It's a Tempest. Okay. It's a, it's a um, cabaret cabinet. And um, what are you up to these days, Steve? How, how do you feel your time now? End of May, I retired. <laughs> that was a big accomplishment for me. But I've been doing for 20 years uh, computer contracting, um, doing programming mainly. Okay. And uh, embedded system programming is very similar to CoinOp. Steve, Steve, can I, can I sure. actually come in here? Can I walk you back a little bit? And you mentioned... Uh, Tony asked you when you left Atari, and you and you said you were laid off when when Tramel, when Jack Tramel um, took over the company. Do you do you have any contact with Jack Tramel, who of course was the um, he you know he was best known for founding Commodore. Yeah, no, I never had contact with Jack. Um, I did with Sam Tramel when um, we were cross licensing titles. Sam is his son, right? Yeah, and he was president of Atari Corp. Yeah, yeah. And I was at Tengen, and we were trying to do some was. A game gear no they did a handheld um codename links but i don't remember the, <laughs> the name of it yeah the atari well the atari links was uh, was a thing for sure yeah, yeah yeah um and he part of the weirdness of this split is that the sega or atari corp got all the consumer rights to stuff pre-split from coin up mm. so coin up couldn't even use their own games when they founded the tengen group they could only use post 84 games right Right. Uh, because Tramel had the uh, rights. Right. Okay. Fine. Fine. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. It wasn't a pleasant negotiation with Sam. <laughs> I understand a lot of the resistance no. and a lot of people there. But a lot of the most people they kept of all of, of Atari consumer were the software guys from my group. I think, Steve, I just want to say thank you so much. It's um, uh, It's been a pleasure and an honor, and it's been really fascinating listening listening to you speak. And uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been great. Thank you. 
I'd just like to say there were so many nuggets there, but I think my favourite one was Dave Toyer, uh, not being able to pronounce his name until some Germans told him. That is just fantastic, Steve. Thank you for all your stories. Okay, thanks for having me. And likewise, Steve, um, it's uh, it, it was um, an honour to have you on. I, I, I trying to do some show notes for um, this particular interview was very challenging because it seems you've very rarely spoken about your time at Atari, at least on the internet. So um, it's uh, a real scoop for us to have you on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury and arcade blogger Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor. Thank mm-hmm. you.